Well, good morning, Sherwood Baptist Church. This is an incredible delight and a tremendous blessing for me to have the opportunity to share with you this morning and, and also to share over the next several weeks when Michael asked me if I would uh, do this while he was on this brief sabbatical. Well, I, uh, I just jumped at the opportunity. For one thing, I love him, and there's not anything in the world I wouldn't do for Michael Catt. And uh, secondly, I, I love Sherwood Baptist Church. When, when he told me, well, you ought to do this, you've preached here over 100 times, I went back to see if that was right, and it is. And I, I feel so much at home with you all. I'm just sorry that we cannot be in the auditorium. I know that uh, uh, we're working toward that as soon as possible, but uh, these are strange days, aren't they? Absolutely amazing. So I'm, uh, I'm taping this for you this morning from my study here. By the way, I have all the things that a study is supposed to have. You'll notice over my shoulder here, there is a Ken Jenkins photograph. And if I reach out not very far from here, I have a Michael Catt uh, book. Of course, several books of Brother Michael's. And... Uh, I just, I just want you to know that my prayer is in the next few weeks, we see that what Satan often means as a setback for us can really be for Sherwood Baptist Church, a step up, a step forward. I know there are a lot of things going on this month and our pastor is away and we think, well, how is this going to happen? Why don't we just why don't we just give evidence of the fact that it will happen, that we are really going to step up and be the church. I know Meet the Need is on the horizon here. And could it be that miracle of miracles, this would be the greatest year ever. The need is greater. How can we respond? We ought to be praying about that. I'm also excited about the series, which I'm going to be sharing over the next six uh, weeks or so. Uh, I want to ask you to turn with me right now to the fourth chapter of the book of Philippians. Every year since 1972, God has given me a verse for the year. I began searching for it in 1972. Someone suggested that I do that and use that verse as an anchor through the year. Well, this year, God gave me this verse early. He gave it to me in November. Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. And I see already how God is using that as an anchor for my life, and it can be an anchor for yours. I want you to think with me of these verses under the general theme, be steady in your storms. We're all in various kinds of storms. Some of you are in physical storms. You're fighting battles there, some financial, some are thinking about your future. Uh, we've just come through a, an, an incredibly uh, difficult political time in our nation, and people have divide, divided ideas about the way things ought to happen. They believe this is a storm. We are, we are in a stormy time, aren't we? Well, you can be steady in the storms of your life. And that's what the Apostle Paul tells us in the fourth chapter of the book of Philippians. In a few moments, I want to read to you all of these verses, four through nine, and then we're going to focus our attention upon one verse, the very first verse, and that is verse four. 
because verse 4 tells us that we are to rejoice. That's the first word I want you to think about. Rejoice. And I know that uh, you probably are thinking, well, <laughs> with all these storms, how do you re rejoice? Well, there is the opportunity to make sure that you have your eyes fixed on the right objective. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. He starts out by saying, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say, rejoice. Now, I want to remind you that the Apostle Paul wrote this letter uh, to the Philippian believers in, uh, with a heart that was filled with love. They had actually sent him a love gift, as a matter of fact. This is the, the only book, uh, the only letter of the 13 that the Apostle Paul wrote that does not uh, include some kind of exhortation or admonishment about some evil practice or about some straight weird doctrine that he's trying to correct. Um, about, and he does mention vaguely, just in a few verses, uh, the fact that some of the brothers ought to help a couple of ladies who are there in the church. That's it. The rest of the book is filled with words about his love for the believers at Philippi. And he encourages them, as a matter of fact, to rejoice. The word joy or rejoice is, or one of its cognates, something like that, is mentioned 18 times in this letter to the believers at Philippi. Now, I want to remind you that the Apostle Paul wrote to some people with whom he had a history. Uh, as a matter of fact, when Lydia was converted in Philippi, she was the very first convert on European soil. Paul had spent his earlier life and years in ministry with the Christian faith in, uh, in Asia. And remember, he, he had intended to go someplace else, but he saw this vision, come over into Macedonia and help us. And so he set sail from Asia at Troas and he went over to Philippi. Amazing things happened there. Amazing. As you recall, not only were Lydia and several others converted, well, after a, a night in prison and an earthquake, the Philippian jailer and his family were converted. And, and this began a ministry through Europe. As a matter of fact, over a, uh, just about a 10 or 15 year period, God allowed the Apostle Paul to touch two thirds of the Mediterranean world with the gospel. That's absolutely amazing. And so one of the letters that he wrote in the second half of his ministry uh, was this letter to the church at Philippi. It's called a prison epistle because Paul was in prison in Rome when he wrote this, uh, this letter. And he writes it to people whom he really, really loves. So I want to remind you of that because everything that I share during these weeks is to a congregation, a fellowship of believers, whom I really, really love with all my heart. Honestly, I, I love you folks and I'm so grateful and humbled by this privilege of sharing with you. Now, before I read the scripture, I want to tell you a story. It's a true story. Uh, it's a story that is ongoing even as I speak because it is about a family that lives here in Oklahoma City, a family with whom I am very, very well acquainted. I love this family. And you'll discover as I tell this story that I love them 
for, for several reasons. I had the privilege of being their pastor for over 20 years, but I have other relationships with this family as well. This year, the husband and wife will celebrate their 50th wedding anniversary. When they married, they were not believers in Christ. In fact, everything that you think of as being antagonistic to the faith, they experienced. He was in the military, they traveled, and uh, he was anything but a Christian. But about two or three years into their marriage, um, they came to know Christ as their Savior. And as Jesus always does, he made a radical transformation in their life. It was amazing. And, and if you had known them before and then knew them after, you, you would have said, these, these couldn't be the same people. They became serious Christians, not serious in the mean fashion, but, but they took the Bible, studying the Bible seriously and practicing the Bible and living each day in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Well, uh, after 12 years of their marriage, their, their fifth daughter, their fifth child, a daughter, was born to them in a military hospital, as a matter of fact. And um, in the process of that daughter's being born, um, there were some serious mistakes that were made. As a matter of fact, the doctor uh, later fled the country. Literally, you hear things like this, but he fled the country. And I know there's so many pressures on, on physicians, but uh, these, were, these were serious mistakes involving uh, a physician being on a break and then being unwilling to come off the break and all of the problems that occurred as a result of that to this little girl that was first in her mother's womb and then later lived without oxygen for a long time outside of, his mother, of her mother's womb. Well, these complications led to uh, some interesting decisions on the part of this family. Uh, the girl was so seriously injured that she, would, she was never, ever going to be able to sit up on her own or walk on her own. She could hear by the hardest and see by the hardest. She could move her head a bit and her arms just a little to somewhat flail about, no control over them, but, but they could move. But that, but that was it. If she was to live uh, the rest of her life out, she was going to live totally bedfast, and the people uh, who attended to her care would have to feed her every bite she ever ate, every meal, bathe her, change her clothes, take care of her hygiene, often uh, have to scurry about in the middle of the night to find apparatus that would help her to breathe because sometimes that was difficult for her. They were challenged to, to give her up repeatedly, as a matter of fact, almost forcefully. And they, because of their Christian convictions, chose not to do that. Now, I'm going to share with you the outcome of that story. That girl is now 38 years of age at the close of the message this morning. But let me just, let me just uh, allay some suspicions that you might have. If you're hanging in there thinking that, well, they prayed and she was miraculously healed, you're wrong. If you're hanging in there and saying, well, uh, well, they, 
they wrote a story about her life and made a movie about her life and became millionaires. No, that's not true. They still live in this humble home that uh, God has given them. It's beautiful and graced with the love of God. If you're thinking that the world beat a path to their door, uh, asking them about this, no, as a matter of fact, uh, the world continues sometimes to be very critical of them for actually keeping her in their home, taking care of her when, after all, they could place her somewhere and others would just uh, stick her over in a corner and, and ignore her. So if you're hanging on thinking that there's some beautiful miracle story at the end, uh, you're wrong, except I'll have to tell you that by the grace of God, the end of the story is far more glorious than the beginning. You'll have to wait to hear because their life perfectly illustrates the principle that we're going to talk about in this first message. We're talking about being steady in the storms. Well, the first exhortation is that you and I must rejoice. So with your Bible opens to Philippians chapter 4, let me begin reading with verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will keep your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. And finally, brothers, whatsoever is true, whatsoever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. And the things you have learned and received, and heard, and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I pray that God will attend the preaching of the word in these next very few minutes with his power, and I trust that you will pray that with me as well. Rejoice. That's the first thing that the Apostle Paul tells to these believers in Christ who are facing storms in their own life, just as Paul, imprisoned when he writes, is facing storms in his, and just as you are facing storms in your life. Rejoice. Now that seems rather a ridiculous statement in the middle of a storm, but in a few moments I think you will see that to rejoice is essential and to rejoice at the beginning of our dealing with the storms in our life is even of greater essence. It's so important. Why? Because it says at the beginning, I'm going to live a life of faith. I see beyond this. I see through this. I see to the end. I know when when I was a little boy, my, my dad <laughs> Uh, was going to teach me how to ride a bike. And I had tried a couple times and fallen off and skinned my knee pretty severely, as a matter of fact, and was sitting there on the curb uh, crying. And my dad came out and put his hand on my shoulder and he said, would you like me to teach you how to ride that bike without falling down? 
And I snubbed and I said, yeah, I would. And he put me on that bicycle and he said, now do exactly what I say. He said, look, all the way down to the end of this street. See that car down there? Way down there at the end. All right, I want you to keep your eyes on that car. Never look down. Don't look down. Don't look at the sidewalk. Don't look at the street. Don't look at anything. Don't look at any other cars. Just, just keep your eyes on the end of that road. And so he pushed me off and ran beside me for a while. And I was, I was wobbling along and I would look down. He'd say, no, don't look down. Don't look down. And I'd wobble a little more. And he'd say, no, don't look down. Don't look down. Keep your eyes on that end of the street where that car is. And did you know that I rode all the way to the end of the road without falling down and ran right straight into the car, as a matter of fact. But I had learned how to ride my bicycle without falling down. Now, this is the principle that the Apostle Paul is saying. He's saying, put your eyes on the right thing, the right person. And you do that by rejoicing. Now, what I'd like for you to do is take your pencil, and either in your Bible or on your notepad. I want you to write down three sentences. And you're going to see how this verse, as it just opens up for us, explains to us that each of these three statements is a possibility in your life and in mine. And by exercising this, we can be steady in the storms of our life. All right, are you ready? Here's the first principle. I am commanded to rejoice. Write that down. I am commanded to rejoice. Here's what the Apostle Paul says in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord, always. Again, I will say rejoice. Now, Paul was big on talking about joy. I'll just be honest with you. Uh, as a matter of fact, in this little brief letter of Philippians, the word joy or rejoice, one of those cognate words that has to do with joy, is mentioned 18 times. Times. Amazing. And here in this verse, when he writes about it, he writes about it in the sense of, of an emphatic, a command. Actually, it is keep on rejoicing in the Lord. That would be the way you would write it. And so I am commanded to rejoice. Now, that seems like it's a little strange, doesn't it? Because how can you command an attitude in someone? I heard about this little boy in a car who was fussing and making a, just throwing a fit. And his mother said, sit down. And he sat down. And, and after a while he said, well, I'm sitting down now, but I'm standing up on the inside. Well, <laughs> how do you command an attitude? Well, joy is an attitude. I'll just be honest with you. It, it is an attitude. It is the ability to see beyond the current circumstances to the fact that God, who is working all things together for your good and mine, if we're believers in Christ, that God is in charge. It is an attitude. It takes the, the largest look at the situation rather than, than looking at the debris down by the bicycle and the curb and, and a stick on the road. It's looking down toward the end and saying, you know something? I see God is taking me someplace. He's doing something good with this. And so I'm going to rejoice. It, it is an attitude, but also it is an action. 
If it weren't an action, he wouldn't command it. But because it is a command, it means that you and I are going to be held responsible for it. If you say, well, I'm just an old curmudgeon and I'm just gripey because the news was bad, don't you realize that's what the news is intended to do, to incite you to be angry. If, you don't, if you're not, you're not going to come back to the next uh, session of the news, the next report, and hear about how to be even more angry with somebody. That, that's their job. But you say, well, I, I have a reason to be that. Things are not going right. The weather's not right. The government's not right. The taxes are too high. My neighbors uh, don't keep their yard like they're supposed to. Hey, listen, it is an action to rejoice. That's what he is saying here. Not just an attitude, but an action. Embrace the fact that God is on his throne, that God is doing a bigger work than you and I would ever imagine, and he's doing it in us because the scripture says that he, as it is at work, conforming us to the image of his dear son. So there's something about this storm that you're in, seen by God, there's something about that that's going to, that's going to conform you to the image of Christ. Now we're not talking about silliness or giddiness or ignorance. We're not saying rejoice, you know, just be mindless about what's going on. No, I mean, the, the Bible says we weep with those who weep. We mourn with those who mourn as well as laugh with those who, who laugh. Well, we, we, it doesn't mean we're supposed to just be ignorant or stupid. Uh, I, I, I know of people like that. Their, their, their joy is not a matter, it's not an informed joy. It's just, it's just ignorance. And uh, they're blissful because they're blissfully ignorant. Well, it's not that. It is seeing a larger picture so that actually, in reality, you can... Uh, you can rejoice because you see what God is doing. Let me give you a good illustration of this. Uh, I, as a minister, have, have conducted uh, a, a number of, of funerals, hundreds maybe, maybe thousands. I would say hundreds, just to be safe, okay? And uh, I've noticed at funerals that, that there are, are two different attitudes expressed by people in, in the congregation. First of all, there are those who don't know Jesus. And they come by and look sadly into that casket at the, the lifeless form of, of the person who has passed away, has now stepped out somewhere into eternity, and they begin to weep. I've seen children do this, weep. I'll never see him again. This is the life. I loved him so much, loved her so much. I cannot imagine life without this person. And they, they mourn. But then there are those who know Christ, who have taken the long look. They see that God is running the show, that there is something on the other side of death. Do they weep? Yes. Will they miss this person? Yes. Would they love to pick up the phone tomorrow and call this person? Of course. But is there joy in their heart? Yes. Because in spite of their tears, they say, I know this, I'll see this person again. I know this, this person is far better off now than he or she ever would have been on the face of this earth. I am commanded to rejoice. Here's the second sentence you ought to write down. I have 
cause to rejoice. I have cause to rejoice. In other words, there's a reason I can rejoice. You say, Brother Tom, you don't know my circumstances. There, no, no, there is a reason to rejoice. Notice what he says. Rejoice, have joy in the Lord. Have joy in the Lord. Now, uh, you, you may think, and I think you're correct in this, that what he's saying here is rejoice in the, the person of the Lord, in him, in, in who he is, in what he's done, in what he is doing, in, in where he is, and how he's going to wrap all of this up. Yes, rejoice in the person of the Lord. You, you, could not, you could spend this day and not exhaust a discussion about who the Lord is and where he is and what he has done. I mean, just think of the names of the Lord God. Why, he's your healer. He is your provider. He is the most high God, King of kings, Lord of lords, Prince of peace. He's coming again. Think about that. All he is and all he is doing and all he will do and where he is. You can rejoice in the person of the Lord Jesus. But it's not only a matter of rejoicing in the person. It's rejoicing in your position in the Lord Jesus. The Apostle Paul uses in the Lord, or something closely associated to that, 164 times in his letters. And he's talking about our position in Christ and Christ in us. We're told here, rejoice from your position. You are in the Lord. I think the best illustration I, I know to describe what it means for you and me to be in the Lord is one the Bible uses when it tells that salvation is a great deal like marriage. The bride and groom stand at the altar. Uh, she says, I do to him. He says, I do to her. And God the Father says, welcome home, my child. When I look at you, I see my son Jesus, and I see you through his eyes. And everything that is his is yours because you are in Christ. That is actually wonderful. And Christ is in you. That is an incredible promise. When, uh, when Diana and I got married, uh, before we got married, she was Diana Barber. When we got married, we exchanged vows, and she became Diana Barber Elif. And you know what that meant? Everything that I have is hers. Everything that I have tangibly, physically, everything that I am emotionally is hers. Everything that I have providentially is hers. All that I have is hers. Did you realize that when you are a believer in Christ, you have said yes to him, and God the Father has said, I see you in Christ Jesus. All that he has is yours, and that's all that I have is available to you. It's incredible. How could you not rejoice? But also the scripture says that Jesus is in us. Rejoice in the Lord. Our Christ in you, the scripture says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, the hope of glory is what? Christ in you. That's amazing when he says that. I think about that. We are not only in Christ and all that he has is ours. He is in us. 
We have his spiritual DNA. You know, I, I sit at a basketball game, high school basketball game, and, and listen to a couple of men in the front who are now grandfathers of one of the players out there on the floor. And, and, and one looks at the others and says, you know, you know, he shoots just like his dad did. The other says, yeah, he dribbles just like his dad did. And another the guy turns back to him and he says, oops, yeah, he fouls just like his, his, dad, his dad did. But he's, he's like his dad. His dad's DNA is in him. When you receive Christ Jesus, you were born all over again, the Bible says. His DNA is in you. And so you can rejoice. Uh, I had the privilege some time ago of standing out on an outcropping in, in Cuba and looking off at a prison. And I know that an acquaintance of mine had died in that prison. Only, I only knew him, I say an acquaintance, I was acquainted with him, not he with me. I went, in fact, one time to hear him speak. As I recall, I may have stood in line to shake his hand after it was all over, but I, I had great admiration for this man. He'd been a missionary many years in Cuba. And when Castro took over, it wasn't very long before he and many other believers in Christ had been imprisoned. When he was imprisoned, he was put in, a, in solitary confinement, a little cell that was so small he could not even lie down in it. And there was water on the floor. He wouldn't have, couldn't have, if he could lie down, he wouldn't have done it. And he stayed there for days. He, he despaired. He began to cry out, God, why am I here? And one day they opened the cell and they took him down to a shower. And up on the wall, he saw that one of the prisoners had, had written, condemned to die today, underneath these words, for me to live is Christ. And he said, that's why I'm here. I am to be Christ in this place. He thought, how can I do that? They took him from that shower. And after he dressed, they took him to a barracks where the bunks were so close together that it, it was like three layers, as a matter of fact. You, you, one was up on the, uh, near the ceiling and one in the middle and one a lower bunk. And, and you had to crawl over the bunks to get, to get to yours. Hundreds of men. He was assigned the responsibility of keeping a rose garden. And he was supposed to be perfectly quiet. They said, no discussion between any of you all. And he said, well, I'm going to keep this rose garden just like Jesus would have kept this rose garden. And he began tending the flowers and expressing his joy and humming a tune. And, and after several days, the warden came to him and said, I need to talk with you. He thought, what have I done wrong? He stepped into the room and the warden said, you must be a Christian. And he said, how do you know that? He said, I've been watching the way, your heart, as you tended to these flowers. Now, well, this is what God's asking of you and me. We're, we're in storms. You have all kinds of storms. But he says, rejoice. I am commanded you to rejoice. I have cause to rejoice. I am in Christ. Christ is in me. And think about who Christ is and all that he's done. I can rejoice. And then notice this last statement here. I can, in fact, I must continually rejoice. I am commanded to rejoice. I have cause to rejoice, and I must continue to rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord, how often? Always, in all things. He said, in case you miss that, again, I will say, rejoice. He's trying to hammer that in. He's trying to write it across their hearts. And he's across the centuries, he's saying that to you and to me. 
This is the Apostle Paul writing from prison. Do you think life was easy for him? Let me read you just a description of the physical hardships during the first 10 years. Now he's, he's writing about this. He said, Why, in far more labors and far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. How many times have you received 39 lashes? Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, from robbers, from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers in the sea, dangers among false brothers. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And on top of this, there's the daily pressure of my concern and love for all the churches, all these people who have trusted in Christ, who I have the privilege of communicating with. And yet he writes and says, rejoice. You see, I must continue to rejoice. It's my continual confession that I have faith, that I believe that on the other side of this storm, there is the Lord. I must keep my eyes on him. I must set my course toward Him and His will in my life. I can rejoice. Oh, the rest of that story. No, they didn't ship that girl off to a home for children who could barely move and had to be cared for where she would languish away and, and ultimately die. This, this father and mother took this girl home, and they began to care for her. Has it been easy? No, it's not been easy. Every meal she has ever eaten in her life, they have fed it to her or infused it in her. Every time she's been changed, they have done it. Every bath she's ever had, they've given it to her. That's been for 38 years years. She's never spoken a word to them. If they don't move her, she simply lies there helpless. They set her up and put her back down. She can move her head back and forth and, and smile sometimes and frown sometimes. She has trouble hearing and seeing, but she cannot talk. Her hands sometimes move spasmodically, but that's it. 38 years. You say, well, I guess things have gotten easier. No, things have, have gotten more difficult, as a matter of fact. Now she is, for the most part, on a respirator, which requires that they get up multiple times during the night and change out the filters and take care of her in that fashion. Oh, and, and now the husband of 50 years has, in more recent days, been diagnosed with Alzheimer's, and you can see the impact of that in his life. So now all the care uh, has rested on the shoulders of a mother. That lady and her husband are so filled with joy. I tell you, it is infectious. It rubs off on you. When I stop by the house ever to visit, which is not often enough, I, I feel joyful when I leave. Such 
a wonderful, pleasant, well, hello there. I mean, even on the telephone, you, you want to rejoice. God is always in the control. I have never once, and I was their pastor for 20 years, heard them speak a negative word about anybody in regard to their circumstances. No, sir. They rejoice in the Lord. Uh, tough days are ahead for them, but still, they're rejoicing in the Lord. I know this family well. Two of the children in that family are married to two of our children. One is married to my son, who's a pastor. The other is married to my daughter, who along with him are missionaries in Southeast Asia. Now, let me just tell you something. If that mother and that father had not learned to rejoice in the Lord, those children would have no desire to serve the Lord or to share the gospel around the world as they're doing. That girl lying in that bed is touching the world because a father and mother have learned to rejoice. Can't you do that? Can't we do that? We can be steady in the storms of life. Yes, we can. But it all starts with the word rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father in heaven, I pray your Holy Spirit through this incredible medium uh, of the internet will touch hearts and change lives. My heart, my life included. And Father, I know that it's difficult to do this, we think, because we're not accustomed to it. But on this, on this medium, I want to extend in a few moments an invitation. Lord, there are people who need to trust you as their Savior. There are people who have trusted you who have lived sour lives during these days. Lord, we're in, we're in storms. Whether it's the pandemic or the politics or whatever it is, we are in storms. Some are worried about their future. Some are worried about their finances. Some have marital problems or child problems. Lord, we have storms. Teach us that the very first thing we must practice is joy in the Lord. For you have said, rejoice in the Lord always. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And dear friend, let me tell you, if you've never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are not in Him. He is not in you. You may have some thoughts about Him, but it will be impossible for you to live out the principles, the practice of this message without knowing Christ personally as your Savior. I want to encourage you to contact this church in fact, before each of these services, why don't you text your friends and call them and say, hey, I'm about to go to worship. Why don't you go worship with me at Sherwood Baptist Church? But there at that church, as you contact them, they'll eagerly explain to you how not only can you become a part of that fellowship, but how you can become a part of God's forever family by receiving the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, repenting and believing in Him for forgiveness for eternal life. And I leave you with this. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice.